Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Bruce Springsteen, come on. What would my birthday be without him? play for you now is um, something that I think you'll find absolutely fascinating, and that is um, uh, how do we intend to uh, navigate the terrain with China? Um, the Chinese influence operations that close their consulate, I believe consulate, not embassy, in um, Houston, right? This is all related to those those events. So you're going to hear uh, a discussion um about that, and I, it's in my opinion fascinating stuff. I mean, think about that. More than a thousand agents of China have left the country. You want to tell us? And so, um, what that is, it's, uh... so you're gonna hear a guy introduce this. I don't know who this guy is, but this is something that was done by the Aspen um, Institute. Now, it's a different organization, my understanding, than the Aspen Security Conference, right, and Security Forum. So, But they do a lot of the same stuff. I don't know if it's an affiliation or not. might be, right? So this is their cyber summit that took place about a week or two ago. Uh, John Demers, uh, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security, the Justice Department, and... Um, uh, Bill Evanina, the Director of National Counterintelligence and Security, uh, and uh, Iruna Viswahana uh, will be um, doing the moderation for that. So uh, I turn things... Aruna Viswahana is a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, so you know there's going to be quality shit, right? Exactly. It's over for all of that, and I thank all of you for, for joining with us. They were just taking a minute to get their shit together. Uh, hello, we're on, everybody. Vanina, who should be on in a minute. Good afternoon, we're him here. Great, and I think John is just about to join us. Yes. Can you hear me, Aruna? Yes. Great. I think we can't see you. The world of Zoom, right? That everybody has learned to hate at times. But we have all gotten better at teleconferencing, right? This post that stopped the video. There's Owen that. Can Great. you see me now, Aruna? Yes. Okay, great. Excellent. So thanks. Thanks for joining us today. And um, just to kick things off. uh, So the Justice Department had announced this China initiative um, almost two years, just about two years ago. And um, that same week, the Justice Department did file a couple of cases alleging trade secrets theft by uh, Chinese, a couple of Chinese companies and individuals, including um, a Chinese intelligence officer. And then at that time, John, you said um, that the cases taken together paint a, quote, grim picture of a country bent on stealing its way up the ladder of economic development and doing so at American expense. And now that, you know, it's been two years, there's obviously been a, a series of additional cases um, from the Justice Department and the FBI's opening a counterintelligence case every 
10 hours or so linking to China. So maybe let's start off by stepping back a little bit and um, getting your assessment of what has all of this law enforcement activity, um, what kind of impact has that had? Has that picture you painted two years ago um, changed at all? Well, thanks very much, Arun, and obviously thanks to all the folks at uh, Aspen Cyber. I heard Carlin's voice before as well for uh, for having me on, for having Bill on, which is the harder pull. But uh, I think, you know, from our perspective, uh, what we have in the past two, three years managed to disrupt a significant amount of malign Chinese activity. And I can come back to that. I think we've also managed to raise awareness through our cases in the private sector, in the public, in the university community, all of which goes to helping us disrupt that activity uh, because we really can't do it without their uh, cooperation and their efforts and their stepping forward to help us. And then third, I think it's allowed us to uh, uh, further our cooperation with our international partners and other uh, free market liberal democracies around the world. And I think we're going to need that as we uh, work together to uh, try to figure out what the new relationship should be with uh, China. On the first point, on on the disruption point, you know, we talk a lot about our cases, and obviously each one of those cases uh, represent uh, economic espionage, political espionage, or other uh, malign activity that has been uh, disrupted, you know, in that instance, oftentimes with the, with the arrest of the, of the individuals involved, uh, and then later their convictions or, or their guilty pleas. But uh, I think, you know, what we've also done recently is taking a more programmatic approach. And so if you look at the cases, uh, just as an example, over this past summer, we arrested five or six uh, researchers who were here from China on visas who were affiliated with the People's Liberation Army, the Chinese military, but who hadn't uh, disclosed that affiliation, had hidden that affiliation when they applied for their visas. Those five or six arrests were just the tip of the iceberg. And honestly, the size of the iceberg is one that I don't know that we or uh, other folks realized how large it was when we began down that road. But between those five and six arrests, uh, between the you know dozens of interviews that the Bureau did of other individuals who were here in similar circumstances, and then ultimately the closure of the Houston consulate to disrupt both foreign influence activity and economic espionage activity. Uh, more than a thousand PLA-affiliated Chinese researchers left the country. So our prosecutions were just the beginning of that, but they allowed us to message to the Chinese government that if you're going to come, if you're going to send individuals here, you've got to do so honestly. Uh, and you can't do so hiding their affiliation to the PLA and, and to Chinese military universities. So that's an example of the disruption, you know, in addition, as I said, to the cases uh, themselves where we've uh, arrested the people and stopped that conduct. But there, there are other examples of where what we're trying to do in the cases is not just uh, arrest that individual, but disrupt a broader course of activity. Um, that's, a, I think, a new number that I, I don't think you've um, put that out there before, that a thousand uh, military researchers have left the country since yeah. those cases. That's true. Um, that is the new number. Yes. <laughs> do you do you view that network as um, it, it, obviously some of those defendants describe them as sort of administrative crimes? They're not actually being charged with espionage. Do you right. view them as sort of a, a a network that is involved in collaborating to collect information, or is this more of a sort of process issue where we just need to have a better handle on who is coming into the country? 
Well, uh, it's certainly the latter. I mean, we definitely need to have a better handle on who's coming into the country, but there's no question that they were part of a Chinese government effort to send these individuals here and to send them here without disclosing their identities. I mean, what we saw in the reaction to the arrests uh, based on other investigative work that we did was that the Chinese government was instructing those individuals to hide their affiliations, both up front on their application form and then later, you know, when they uh, were afraid of, of having these folks get caught. So um, th- there's no question that, you know, this wasn't a series of coincidences or a series of individuals who didn't understand their forms. They were part of something bigger. Uh, again, you know, we haven't charged them with uh, espionage. Our goal here is to disrupt that kind of activity, and you can do that in any number of different ways, and and this was one of them. Bill, to bring you in, you've been in your job for, I think, almost seven years now, and obviously you've um, witnessed this shift in the U.S. government's approach. Um, To what extent, uh, what have you seen as the impact of all of these trade secret stuff cases, these researcher cases? Um, Is it sort of a a game of whack-a-mole a a little bit, or have you seen a fundamental change in the landscape? Uh, That's a great question, Aruna. And again, to to echo what John said, thanks for the opportunity to be here with Aspen and and partnering with with my friend John. I think this is a really good opportunity uh, to be able to get this information out to the people who are in, in this Aspen ecosystem. I think it's really important. But to your question, I think it's multifaceted in terms of the impact. Clearly, the impact uh, that DOJ and the FBI bring uh, with the indictments, uh, for me, has geopolitical impact and it has counterintelligence impact. And, and what I mean by that is uh, the way the Department of Justice and John's China Initiative have really uh, promulgated the indictments to be reading indictments, to be stories of their own, it really lends itself to U.S.-based companies to read these as a watch out for what not to do, be aware of kind of um, narrative, unlike, you know, maybe other type of indictments they might do. So if you pick any one of the cases you referenced or any other the, of the three or four dozen cases of the last couple of years, the indictments by themselves are phenomenal reads for how the process works and what China's strategic strategy is with going ahead and trying to obtain uh, our, our trade secrets and our proprietary data and our ideas. To John's last point, uh, those thousand or so PLA students, uh, where I'm most concerned about are the graduate level students. And let's not kid ourselves. They are all coming here at the behest of the Chinese government and intelligence services. They're going to specific universities to study specific fields or areas that are going to benefit the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party and the military. So that's that's the strategy. We need to be aware of that so we can continue to advise and inform heads of academia at uh, the college university level, that this is happening and somehow find a way to be constructively uh, mitigation efforts to do that. Secondarily, what, what I like to do, and I've done successfully with uh, with John's indictments and the hard work of, of the women and men of the Department of Justice and the Bureau, I've taken those indictments overseas. And I'm fortunate to have a really cool role uh, as head of counterintelligence uh, for both NATO and, and leading the efforts in the Five Eyes to take these indictments overseas to Europe and show our counterparts what's going on here in the U.S. so they can advise and inform their policymakers in Europe of the same techniques and tradecraft we see in China. And that's been a big win, whether it be on theft of intellectual property and trade secrets to 5G, to, to semiconductor nanotechnologies. We've really come a long way the last two years in Europe 
of advising and informing our, our partners in Europe of the nefarious activities of China. And I think that's directly relatable to the way that DOJ now writes their indictments. That's really interesting. Is there a specific case you would point to that's um, sort of opened some more doors in Europe or been that they've been particularly receptive to? Yeah, I, I will. And, and, and I know John has heard me brag about this before. Uh, two, two of them would be in the Micron case. I think is, is something that I look at as, as an indictment that's worthy of already a, a movie in the making, and as well as uh, the Huawei indictments and the superseding indictments. To me, uh, I, and I've said this on the, on the circuit that all the CEOs, uh, every, every CEO and general counsel need to read these two indictments uh, because this is the tried and true process, not only from a, a cyber capability and a penetration, but a, a strategic intent of the Communist Party of China, as well as the insider threat, the ability of the Communist Party of China to use a suite of tools to get what they want are really, really played out in these two particular indictments. And I believe that they are a must read for U.S. businesses who want to participate, play and or partner with some Chinese based company. So, right. So you bring up um, sort of corporate corporate America and um, CEOs as being sort of integral to your efforts on this front. Um, there obviously is still a pretty wide gulf between how the national security community views China and the business community um, views China. Um, just to uh, cite a story from one of my colleagues uh, a couple of weeks ago, the former deputy FBI director had had recently resigned from Air. BNB due to concerns about just how much um, information that the company was sharing um, on their customers with Chinese authorities. And at one point when he spoke up about his concerns, according to my colleagues, um, a company co-founder told him, quote, we're not here to promote American values. How, you know, how important is this to you? How, how would you think about this sort of split between the way um, the U.S. government views China and the way a lot of other people in America view China? So um, I think I think it's really important, and and I, and I I probably would not use the word split. I would probably use um, our continuing education of America of these pitfalls. And I don't know if there's a split or there's just not yet. We've we've accomplished what our goal is to be able to ed- educate and inform CEOs and board of directors. And we've been at this for a couple of years now, and, and John's been part of it. I've worked in a bipartisan manner with Senator Burr, Rubio, and Senator Warner, briefing tens of thousands of CEOs and board of directors of, of the pitfalls, specifically with third-party data sharing agreements that China mandates you must do. Also, the American public is clearly not aware of, of all their data that's going free to the intelligence services of China because of business arrangements between a U.S. business and a business out of China. Some of this really is just education and awareness of the, the CEOs and the general counsels of the potential pitfalls. The case you bring up of, of that company, Aaron B, I think is a great example. And I think we have to have a conversation with ourselves as a society when we sign up for these companies and these programs and these apps. Are we okay with our data going over to a communist country for utilization by the intelligence services? And do we even know that? And I think that's the conversation we're not there having yet, but we're trying on a daily basis. So I wouldn't say it's a it's a um, a split. I would say it's yet we're still in the process of educating and informing. Um, so, John, to um, talk, think about that, right? Think about that 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 all that data, right? And that statement, we're not here to promote American values. Wall Street continues to be China's biggest ally because of the upside. What that does to the American job market, 
what that does to the American middle class, what that does to the intelligence picture, not the interest of Wall Street, right? It's only how much more money can we make for our hedge funds by investing there. It's pretty amazing when you think about it, that the great American financial engine that is Wall Street would be the ally of America's right greatest greatest foe. Talk again about the broader China initiative. It seems like some of the actions the Justice Department has taken under this umbrella have been some of the things that most irritated Beijing over the past couple of years. You have the arrest of Huawei's CFO in Canada two years ago. You have the um, arrests of the military affiliated researchers. Um, do you see the Justice Department playing? A, is, has there been a shift in the role the Justice Department plays in foreign policy over the past couple of years? What role do you see the department playing? And is it sort of specific to China or is there a, a more fundamental shift at play? I don't know that there is a shift. I mean, fundamentally, our cases are the results of law enforcement actions and criminal investigations like any of the cases that the department are. That said, of course, we have to recognize that sometimes our cases have foreign policy implications, um, either you know just out of necessity or because of another country will perceive it uh, to have some kind of impact on the relationship between the US and, uh, and, and that country. So we're aware of those um, implications for sure when we bring these cases, but Really, we're just starting from the point of view of, you know, where are we seeing illegal activity? And that really is how the China Initiative got started and just being briefed day in and day out on the intelligence side on what the Chinese were doing in the United States. And then, you know, well, what tools do we have that we can bring to bear to combat that kind of activity? But ultimately, these are law enforcement investigations. So, you know, they don't have a foreign policy purpose, even if they have, I think, you know, they, they can certainly have and have had. Uh, foreign policy implications. And that's something that, you know, we need to coordinate within the government with our interagency partners, including especially uh, the State Department. And do you think we should expect to see any more developments um, this month and next month? Uh, or at this point, are, are things kind of quieting down? No, I think you'll continue to. I mean, we're, we're, we march forward. The, the malign activity marches forward and we're not going to pause for a few months. And I don't think the incoming folks would, would want us to pause for a few months. Um, the cases, you know, there are cases that I think will come to a charging state naturally over the course of, you know, the next six or eight weeks. And, and we'll move forward uh, on those matters. And there are other investigations that are getting started that other folks will finish off. I mean, when I started this job, the cases I was bringing were ones that had started you know, by by John Carlin and, and Lisa Monaco and others. And, uh, you know, when I leave, I think the cases that they were the ones that have started now. Um, you, you mentioned the election. So maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Um, now that the dust has settled a little bit, Bill, if you can, can you talk a bit about um, what you view as how effective the U.S. was in um, deterring for, deterring foreign interference this time around? It seems like it's been pretty quiet. I think we even heard yesterday at this conference that um, we were pretty successful on that front. Yeah, sure. I'd be, I'd be I'd actually be proud to talk about that, Aruna. I think uh, from my perspective, what we accomplished uh, the past two years, but specifically the last six to nine months, uh, as an integrated holistic government effort in partnership with social media and tech firms 
uh, is unprecedented. And I think it's really going to be the model of the future moving forward, how we protect uh, not only just elections, but how we mitigate Milan foreign influence and how we drive continued protection of democracy. I think our adversaries saw some significant loopholes in our democracy, and they kind of use our First Amendment and other amendments against us. So I think what we did the last six months to nine months, both offensively and defensively, is going to be the playbook for which we defend in the future. Uh, you know, I've been in this business a long time, going back prior to 9-11, and, and I saw this type of um, organizational symbiotic effort after 9-11. This is the first time I've seen it again, where we had, you know, double-digit agencies working together every day, all day, dedicated women and men around the globe, uh, collecting intelligence, driving action, providing real-time information to DHS and FBI, FBI and DHS taking the, the appropriate action, dealing with social media companies, taking stuff down, and then at the same time doing really critical offensive measures around the globe, I, I think was, was outstanding. I'm really proud. Uh, I, I, I've said publicly I think this would be the most important role I've had in my, in my career, and I'm really proud of where we are right now and the success we've had We've did some really daring things the last couple of months, both publicly and, and, and non-publicly. And I think they've all paid off. Anything that you can tell us more, a little bit more about that have not been public yet? I think it'll come public. Uh, but I also, uh, my answer to you would be, uh, I really want to give credit to the women and men of uh, NSA, Cybercom and CIA for the work around the globe. Um, so we did see um, one of the- How about that? But it will become public. Um, again, I, I, I don't think, you know, we had this conversation uh, with Lynch, Kenny Costantini, and uh, we had this con- co- conversation about is China a friend, a competitor, an adversary, or an enemy? And I said they're an enemy masquerading as either an adversary or a competitor. But when you look at the predatory nature of what they do, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then what are you going to tell me it is? An orangutan? Well, I mean, you can tell me that, but I've been to the zoo, okay? I know what an orangutan is. And that, my friend, is not an orangutan. It's a duck. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) I know what a duck looks like. But again, I would tell you this. Relative to Wall Street, it doesn't matter. When people look at, and let me tell you, you can use the NBA as the great example, right? In the aftermath of George Floyd, the NBA went batshit. But the NBA doesn't give two shits about what's going on in China relative to Hong Kong, relative to the Uyghurs, right? And all the other shit that China does because they're making a ton of money there. And so the NBA is emblematic of American, quote unquote, capitalism. We don't give a shit. We don't have a conscience. The only... You know, the thing we're interested in is, you know, making more money, us personally. And the only way we do that is our fund makes more money, 
we show a higher rate of return on investment. That's how this game gets played. So, yeah, your American values, we laugh at that. We don't give a shit. Okay? And that's been the landscape forever. The landscape forever has been that, you know, America is getting, you know, China enables itself to be a competitor through stealing not only American technology, but everybody's technology. But nobody more so than the United States of America. So that's why I mean this, in my opinion, this is fascinating because most Americans, you pull back kind of the curtain on this, whether it's the amount of meddling, you know, in domestic events, uh, the amount of, uh, of spying that goes on at universities, especially in graduate scientific programs, right? It's amazing stuff. The, the effort that's being made right now to steal the trade secrets of companies that are going down the road to a vaccine, that's happening in real time right now. The top officials involved in this effort, Chris Krebs fired uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, we did see the the president's lawyer call for um, him to possibly be shot. Are you concerned uh, that there are a lot of Americans that believe uh, um, inaccurate conspiracy theories about what happened in this election? Uh, Concern would be a word. I'm embarrassed would be a second word. Um, I think it's uh, wholly inappropriate and, and just disappointing to me as an American, uh, the comments that were made uh, that you referenced. I just, as a 32-year government official, I, I, it's just embarrassing to me that you would have someone who was respected once as a U.S. attorney or a judge make those foolish comments. Uh, it's, embarrassing would be the right word. Uh, as my, my concern, yeah, because I think... Uh, you know, our elections, as I've said this publicly, are, are the core fundamental basis for which we have the ability to live an amazing democracy. We have to preserve and protect our elections at all costs. So the folks who do that, who put their lives on the line every day, meta, you know, metaphorically on their line, uh, should be, have the ability to do that with, with safety and security and not be anguished because one party lost, one party won. Um, and it, it does seem like China policy is one of the few areas of overlap between the um, Trump administration and the incoming uh, Biden team. Just to quote um, what incoming National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had said on a podcast um, back in 2018, um, I would say there are certain areas where we should pause and say, is Trump onto something? He is much more willing to push hard in the way that the Chinese and the Russians both push hard on friends and foes alike to try to get a good outcome. I think that's a sensibility the next commander in chief should take up uh, combined with um, enlightened self-interest in an actual systematic decision-making process. Um, John, what do you think changes after January 20th in the U.S.-China relationship? Well, I mean, I think from the department's perspective, probably not very much. As I said, ultimately, the department is looking at these matters as law enforcement matters, as individuals who've broken U.S. laws. And, you know, very uh, clearly, I understood what I was doing to be building on uh, work that had been done by my predecessors in the prior administration, it, specifically, you know, the, the cyber indictment back in 2014 of the PLA officers, which, you know, uh, required working through to your, to your prior questions, a lot of foreign policy uh, issues related to that indictment, but they brought it over the finish line. And I think that set a precedent that we were able to build on. So I suspect from our perspective that that work will continue. 
I think the big question, you know, if I were uh, either you know, staying here or coming here with, with the new folks is, you know, what will the other um, agencies, what are they, what's their reaction going to be? Uh, my guess is whoever sits in my job, whoever sits in the AG's job is going to uh, be pressing along the way that we have. But what has really enabled our success is we didn't get any pushback from the State Department. We didn't get pushback from Commerce. We didn't get pushback from USTR. In fact, we got, um, you know, I think applause for, for what we were doing. So what, what will the folks of those agencies that have traditionally in both administrations tended to be more on the economic side of things and wanted to promote sort of the economic relationships between the countries, what, what will their take be in there? I don't, I just don't have the insight into, you know, who, who the folks will be and, and, and what their views are. But that, that's the big question that I'd be asking myself right now. Hey, Runa, can I, add, can I amplify John's answer there? Because I think yeah. he's onto something. I, I think, you know, as we work with our transition team here, and then I think two things will predicate where they go in a continuance of these efforts. Because, you know, I, w- I would say the administration has, has done. I wouldn't- okay, let me just tell you who you're listening to. This guy who's talking right now is a guy named Bill Evanina. He's the director of the National Counterintelligence and the Security Center. Okay, so he obviously works in the federal government, right? Um, he's been doing that since 2018. The other guy you're listening to um, is a Justice Department guy. He is a top Department of Justice um, guy relative to national security. His name is John Demers. Okay, they're being interviewed by a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. And they're talking about cybercrime relative to China and the United States. And give so much credit to the president here as much as one would want. But the administration's movement, as John talked about, that coalition of the willing in the, in the, in the administration of the agencies. But the evidence and the intelligence are going to matter. So the more, you know, the evidence and intelligence we are deriving from Chinese uh, intelligence services and, the, and Xi Jinping and their strategic intent capability, that's not going away. So the fact that new administration comes in, they're going to now see that intelligence. Uh, President-elect Biden and uh, Kamala Harris right now and the entire team are seeing the PDB. They're seeing that intelligence real time right now. PDB is presidential, President's Daily Briefing. So it's going to be uh, an effort for them to continue down a path, may not be the exact similar path, but it's going to be really, really, really important for them to see this intelligence, this information. And to John's last point, those investigations that are being brought up and John is prosecuting as the circle of life continues, more and more of those investigations are coming from businesses and academia to DOJ's way and FBI's way. That will continue in the new administration. And I think the new administration will be left with the ability to find a strategy or policy to continue to deal with this intelligence uh, derivative and investigations. Bill, have you seen any changes in behavior from China since the election or are there sort of newer emerging issues that you think you didn't have to address as much that the new administration will have to? Yeah, great question. So I think the last few months, uh, you know, parallel to the, the elections, we've been dealing really heavy on the COVID-19 front and, and China's efforts to thwart that, not only in the vaccine, but also in the, the promulgation of a supply chain and a movement of the vaccine all the way to inoculation. But we've also seen an uptick, in, which was planned, and we predicted that China would now 
uh, re-vector their influence campaigns to the new administration. And when I say that, you know, that malign foreign influence, that uh, diplomatic influence plus or on steroids, it, we're starting to see that now play across across the country to not only the folks that are in the new administration, but those who are around those folks in the new administration. So that's one area we're going to be very keen on making sure the new administration understands that influence, what it looks like, what it tastes like, what it feels like when you see it. And you are you saw more of that happening post-election. Yes, that's correct. Um, John, are there uh, newer things that are on your radar now that you didn't see over the past couple of years that you think the next administration is going to have to deal with more? I mean, I think I think it's it's a continuation of a lot of the same behavior. I mean, as Bill said, the intelligence is not going to change. The bureau is doing their work. They're unearthing a lot of this activity. They're going to bring those cases to the department. I think that's going to continue forward. I think, you know, where... Um, we really need to stay vigilant on is on the foreign influence uh, piece. And, and that's, you know, election interference is a aspect of foreign influence that comes up every two or four years. And as Bill said, actually, the administration did a very nice job over the last years working together to deal with election interference. But the work on foreign influence continues. And on the broader issue of foreign influence, I think it, only the Chinese have the resources and um, the abilities and and the will to do the breadth of foreign influence that we've seen here. And and I don't think that that's been um, as exposed publicly as it probably will be over the the coming years. Um, Obviously the Houston closure was, was a piece of trying to address that, but in terms of bringing cases and highlighting that, I think that'll be a fertile area. And, and, and to that, I mean, it's only the Chinese who we see operating, not just at the national level, but understand our system well enough to operate at the state level through uh, the, the, the state and local politicians as well. And they have the resources to be able to do that and the sophistication to do that. So I think that's going to be a big and, and a continued challenge. And I think our eyes were opened in 2016, but as our eyes were open, more and more of this activity from a variety of countries came into focus. And what we saw with Iran, for instance, on the election side is some of these countries learning, unfortunately, from the misbehavior of others and trying to emulate it, even if not uh, terribly well in in that case. So I think that's going to be a a continued issue. And on the China side, you know, maybe a development of where this work has has gone. In terms of more foreign influence type cases, are are you suggesting we might see more foreign agents registration act cases or you're talking more broadly than something like that. I mean, FARA is one of the tools. We also use uh, 951, which is an aspect of the criminal code, which is also acting as an agent of foreign power here in the US. We've used that several times, both on the Chinese side and on the Russian side over the last uh, few years. Um, So using a variety of those tools, and then there's also the election finance and the campaign finance cases, which fall more in the criminal division, but we see that as an aspect of sort of you know, um, illegal foreign financing cases that can also be an aspect of foreign influence. Uh, so I think across the gamut of the the, the cases, the, the tools that we have to address that kind of activity, you'll see more of that kind of, of, of those kinds of cases. Got it. Um, so both of you had, had brought up the international cooperation piece of this as being important. And it seems like the Trump administration has had some success in um, convincing other countries to not use Huawei um, gear in their uh, telecom infrastructure. 
Um, looking out over the you know next year, two, three years, um, maybe Bill, this question is for you. What do you see the world um, sort of dividing up more into a section of the world that does use Chinese technology and telecom infrastructure, and a section of the world that uses that relies on Western technology, or um, do you see this shaking out in some other way? A great question. I thought this was fascinating. Um, and I think the answer is he gives a great answer too. I think both of those, I mean, I look at this both geopolitically and economically, you know, so there are going to be parts of the world and the globe where uh, they can only go to China and Huawei because they're at 30 cents on the dollar, right? So we've seen China now pivot to South America and deep parts of South America because there's a, a prime market there. I, I think China now has realized that we called them out and there, were, there is now literally a geopolitical battle space with telecommunications and hardware and Huawei that they're battling. And they thought for sure they owned Europe. That's not the case anymore because of the collaborative cooperation at multiple parts of our government with multiple parts of European governments. And I think with the pushback with the EU, which we never thought we would see, has now occurred. So I think now what's the new battle space? Africa, South America, Indonesia, you're going to see China trying to continue to build that that network where they have, you know, called depth diplomacy, where they offer people critical infrastructure, a.k.a. Huawei, for free with like a 99-year lease with, you know, they, they're basically unable to pay it. I think you're starting to see more of that. And maybe in acquiescence, where they'll play in the backyard fights in Europe, uh, in parts of maybe Western Europe, Eastern Europe, where there's some fringe areas. But I think that geopolitical biospace will continue. I think the race will be, and you've heard this, is what's going to eventually be the United States' answer to Huawei? You know, the quicker we get to a solution of a U.S.-based answer, the quicker we're going to have more uh, quivers in our um, arrows in our quiver to be able to fight back on what our answer is there, I think. But geopolitically, I have to give credit to uh, all of us, not only in the U.S. The US government, international community and U.S. business, to, to push back a little bit. And we're starting to see now a change in China's behavior on Huawei. And that also incorporates some of the indictments that DOJ and John have done, because it's all in the same bucket of, um, of information, intelligence, and facts, which really changes the behavior of, of the Communist Party of China. John, do you have anything you want to add on that? Uh, well, it's going to be very difficult. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, telecommunications is sort of the key, and obviously during these times of everybody working from home has become even more so the way we run our lives, which is why we focused on Huawei and on 5G technologies. I do think that we uh, were able to change the conversation with Europe over time uh, based on the evidence that we were able to show them. I also think that the Chinese changed the conversation by their actions in Hong Kong, by their actions with respect to the Uyghurs, by their now, perhaps, you know, whatever they're thinking of doing uh, with respect to China. And so there's been a backlash uh, on uh, and also really the way that the Chinese overplayed their hand with respect to COVID assistance. And I think there was a backlash in Europe and, and a realization. And this is, I think, you know, going to define the relationship with China going forward. A realization that those of us in um liberal democracies in free market economies just don't share the same values at the end of the day with the Chinese Communist Party. And that those differences in values have consequences for the people who live uh, in those in those different countries. And I think 
the big challenge in the future in dealing with that difference in values will be China's economic power and China's willingness to use that economic power in order uh, to push its policy interests. So when it comes to Huawei, the big challenge in some of these developing countries, but even in developed countries in Europe is not, oh, Huawei is 50% cheaper than the, than the alternative. Not only might Huawei be 50% cheaper because of the government subsidies in China, but the Chinese government will uh, change it, the level of foreign direct investment into your country. The Chinese government will change your company's access to the Chinese market based on your decisions to choose Huawei or not choose Huawei. And we've seen that happen uh, in Europe and we've seen it happen in other countries around the world. And that makes it very difficult for those countries to uh, stand up uh, despite the security risks that they're aware of. But despite that, I think, you know, we've made significant progress and I'm, I'm sure that the new folks will, will continue to push that. So s some of the um, Trump administration's other efforts. Um... I thought, th I, th I thought those two answers were, you know, were fascinating, right? The economic terrorism that Beijing practices, um, um, is that you're going to give up your lunch money to them in return for they're going to allow your private businesses to profit uh, in the Chinese, but you will, you're, you will bend to them and you will bend to their desires. And then to me, what these guys do is they, 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 they paint this picture in very, very stark, you know, uh, very, very blunt, vivid image to sort of counter Chinese technology have not been as successful. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the, the TikTok ban that was um, not upheld in the courts, which said that uh, the U.S. government might have exceeded its authority on, on that front. Um, at this point, it might be in TikTok's interest to wait for the Biden administration. But, John, do you think that the Oracle deal will end up um, being completed under this administration? Or what would your advice be? to the next one on how to deal with TikTok? So I think, you know, TikTok and Chinese apps are really a, an interesting problem for us. I think, I mean, I, I shouldn't comment specifically. I mean, it there is that litigation, litigation's ongoing, and then there's still CFIUS reviews that are ongoing and efforts uh, to move that forward. So I'm, I'm not going to comment specifically on the what the solution space might be here. But the, uh, you know, the, the problem... What we know from our cases, again, and from the intelligence is the Chinese have a huge appetite for people's personal data. And they satisfy that appetite through acquisitions. They satisfy it through thefts. If you think about Equifax, if you think about Anthem, if you think about uh, the, o, the uh, OPM hack. And then now they're able to satisfy it by people voluntarily giving their data to a app that is uh, based in China. And it's really never about the app, and, it, and it's really never about the company in China. The fact is, if you do business there, you have to abide by what the government is going to ask you to do. So you might be in good faith acting as a, as a Chinese businessman or a Chinese businesswoman, but that's really not what we're questioning. What we're questioning is your ability to act independently of the government and keep distance from the government. So I think one of the big challenges now, and the litigation has highlighted it, is how does the government deal from a national security perspective with apps and other instances where Americans and others are voluntarily turning over their their data to China, and how do we protect those Americans from the exploitation of their data? I don't know that we've come to a clear answer on that, and I think 
that litigation and, and the, the various negotiations and the back and forth are reflecting that we still have work to do on that front. And that, you know, I think is something we're leaving for the next folks to, to, to work on. We wouldn't want them to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> Of course. Um, I know we are almost out of time. And before we ended, I did want to ask you about some of the criticism of the China initiative um, you have gotten from academics and others in the university research community that view this as a little bit of um, a racial racial profiling exercise. And sort of so a lot of these are administrative or process crimes. Um, I know that you've said um, all, all along the way that the Justice Department and the U.S. government is focused on the actions of the um, Chinese government and not in Chinese individuals, um, and that some of the defendants have been not of Chinese descent. But um, in hindsight, are there things that you w wish you had had done differently about this? What about even just naming it the China Initiative? Are there things um, you would have wanted to do to kind of address this criticism? I, I mean, I, honestly, I, I don't think so. I mean, we, we knew that this was a concern, and we were very careful about the way we talk about this problem. Um, because, you know, we don't want it to become about the Chinese people. We certainly don't want it to become about Chinese Americans here in the U.S. And as you know, you know, if you look through our defendants, you'll see a great mix of defendants when it comes to uh, ethnic backgrounds who are very much focused on behavior. And when we talk to companies, I know Bill does the same. When you talk to companies, we talk about focusing on behavior and never on using ethnicity as a, as a risk factor or something that those companies should, should be looking at. Same thing on the university front. Now on the university front, I think the main criticism has been centered on the cases involving academics, really American academics, who um, didn't disclose foreign sources of funding on their US grant applications. Uh, and in some cases actively hid the fact that they were uh, also working for the Chinese government or for institutions in China and often getting funding for the same research uh, that they were getting, that they were applying for funding for from the American government. I mean, to that, and, and yes, so the charges have been uh, making false statements to the US government and grant fraud. Um, are those administrative violations? I, I don't know. I mean, th those go to the core of integrity at an academic institution. And an academic institution is all about disclosing sources of funding so that people who are reading your research can figure out with, you know, how, how to read that research. And that's true regardless whether your funding is coming from the alcohol and beverage industry or whether your funding is coming from the Chinese government. The focus is on disclosure. And our cases there, I think, reflect a desire to tailor our approach to the values of those institutions, which are transparency and academic integrity. And those professors who haven't disclosed the sources of their funding when they've been applying for grants have violated what are really, you know, university and academic values uh, as much as U.S. laws. So um, I think now there's a much greater awareness uh, in the academic community of the importance of uh, honest disclosures, but they knew that at the time. And but also at the university level of having compliance programs um, that uh, are adequately tailored to ensuring that your professors and you as a university are not making false representations to the US government. And our point here is, you know, once you make those uh, disclosures, let the US funding agencies, let your university decide what they're comfortable with you taking money or not. 
But if you don't disclose it, they can't decide that. And that's what we saw in case after case. And honestly, it's why the universities have been cooperative with us in case after case, because they know that they can't make that assessment if their uh, professors and researchers aren't being honest with them. Fascinating little bit, right? All about what? Researchers making money. They don't want to disclose who the money's coming from because they're afraid that the university might say, yeah, we're not good with that. We know the federal government's not going to be good with that. Um, and so you can see, you know, information or influence operations at the university level. Right. It's amazing. Um, I see. I think we're just about out of time, but um, do either of you have closing thoughts you want to leave uh, the audience with? Maybe, Bill, we'll start with you. Uh, well, first of all, again, um, thanks for the opportunity to be here with John, and thanks to Aspen for, for, for allowing us the opportunity to be here together to talk about what John and I both believe, or I think, and I believe for sure, China is the existential threat that we face as a nation. Uh, John hit it on the, on the head with their values uh, are completely different than ours. And I think they continue to use theft by any means as part of the business process for the Communist Party of China. And we need to find a way to mitigate that, either through continued prosecutions and maybe more diplomacy, but we have to have an answer to it. That we're looking at $500 billion a year in lost uh, economic uh, investment, proprietary data, trade secrets, just the Communist Party of China. That's a lot of money. And I think we have to figure out how do we stem that tide and also, to, to John's point, we have to continue and have an enduring conversation with academia, research and development about this effort and, and those prosecutions, as you call them, uh, administrative. You now, they're being charged with, you know, noncompliance of, you know, uh, of administrative things. But the tail of that is while they were doing that, there's a shadow lab in somewhere in China that's building that same technology and selling on the global market for 30 cents in the dollar. So there is a long tail, both economically and geopolitically. So I think we have, as a country, have to have a more, more of a whole society approach to this effort and be more aggressive in advising and informing what is the consequence if we don't continue to have some equilibrium on the global stage. And John, did you have anything you wanted to add? Great. Well, thanks again, Aruna. Thanks, uh, Bill. And, and thanks to all of you who are on the line and, and listening. Uh, I think, um, by the way, Bill, we, I think we've lost participants over the course of this. this is a very bad sign for you and me. But uh, the um, but look, for the participants, really, a lot of whom are from the private sector, you know, as Bill and I have said on in, in many occasions, we, we can't do this by ourselves. And really, ultimately, as a government, we're trying to help the private sectors and universities to play defense, to defend against these threats, to educate about these threats, so that they can continue to play offense, so that they can innovate. And what gives me hope in all of this uh, is that technology is ultimately constantly innovating. And I do think, and I think the coronavirus vaccine is a great example of what can happen when American companies and other companies and put their minds to it, they can innovate very fast uh, with government help in this case, um, but and, and with the great focus that's been brought upon us by this, by this tragedy. But that's the way we're gonna get through this. So our job is to make the Chinese job harder, to slow them down, um, to cause them to force more resources. Our job is to educate. 
Um, but ultimately, all of that is with the goal that American companies in the private sector can continue to innovate as, as they help us play defense. So I hope that's, um, you know, a lot of what we've been working with with the private sector on over the last several years. And, and I trust that that will, will continue on in the future. And I'll be eagerly reading about all these issues because I think once you get into this space um, and you realize how important it is, it's very hard for you to uh, just uh, forget about it and, and move on. So I look forward to reading your articles over now. <laughs> well, thank you both so much for joining us today. And thanks to everyone um, uh, watching in the audience. And I think that ends this session and um, we'll see everyone. All right. Well, let me just tell you, um, we'll have a discussion about that, uh, hopefully with Grant tomorrow. And I just, uh, to me, the, the level of it and, and American Greed is the partner to um, Chinese influence operations. American Greed knows no loyalty. I mean, they don't give a shit. Whether it's Wall Street or whether it's university professors, the ability to get this work they so want to do. Well, the Chinese, you know, they'll fund it. Just give us the data. Uh, okay. that how it works? So um, I thought it was fascinating listening to, listening to that. So um, I know it's kind of a little bit dry, uh, not as sexy as some of the other stuff that, uh, that you hear here. But uh, I think uh, if you're going to understand the problem, uh, it's awesome to hear from uh, guys like that. And you just heard from a guy named John Demers. He is the top national security official at the Justice Department. And uh, the other guy that you heard, uh, the other voice that you heard, is uh, the uh, director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. His name is Bill Ebenina, and he's been doing that since uh, 2018. So, yeah, that was that. If you're just tuning in, uh, in hour one, you're going to hear about my birthday. Because you have to hear about that, right? And then you're going to hear about my experience relative to the 23rd Psalm. And, um, And how the 23rd Psalm relates to post-traumatic winning. So don't touch that dial. Um, The 23rd Psalm, in case you don't miss it, written by David, right? King David. And uh, David was quite the composer, quite the poet. And uh, he starts his life as a shepherd. And ultimately becomes the king of Israel. And the fourth verse of Psalm 23 says this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Then there's a semicolon. But you don't hear the rest of this very much. And that is, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And I would tell you that post-medic winning is the armory that sits at the entrance 
to the valley of the shadow of death. And as you go down into the valley, if you stop at the armory and you get a rod and a staff, post-traumatic winning will also issue you one other item, and that is a compass. The rod and the staff are the tools of learning to coexist and living with self-discipline. Armed with that and that compass, you can not only walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you'll walk out of it. And when life sends you back in there, your trips back into the the valley of the shadow of death will be brief, right? And so, because you will have every tool to get out of that valley very quickly. So you'll hear about that. Anyway, uh, on my birthday, on my 63rd birthday, halfway to 126. Yeah, how about that? Um, thanks for listening. Um... Have a great day. On a Monday, All Marine Radio. Oh, happy birthday.